Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 232nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Deanna Ahmad, Peter Spruyett, and John Slater. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we are talking to Clay Epstein of Film Mode. We are talking distribution, and we are also going to check in with Jemai Youssef, who we have not spoken to for a while, and checking in on how film school is going during the pandemic. So it's packed full of fun things. It's a ton of stuff. Yeah, for listeners who don't remember Jemai, we've been following her for kind of a long time now, but she is a student at the USC MFA program, and she's entering her third year. She's almost done. So a lot of big projects that happen in that third year, and so we've kind of just been tracking her progress just to see what it's like to be a grad student in the film program at USC, and things have gotten a little crazy and so we wanted to check in and see how she's doing. She's flourishing. Yeah. Spoiler alert, she might be doing some cool 3D stuff. So this is a great episode. It kind of inadvertently spans the spectrum of experience. I think there are people who are just starting out and trying to figure out what they're trying to do with Jemai. And then Clay in film mode, they're at the kind of the final end of a film's life where they're there to help sell a film that's already completed and take it to market and all that so you know clay's a sales rep he's super experienced he's got a ton of insight into what it takes to take your indie film and turn it into a product that you can sell at market so it's really interesting we dig in a little bit more and this is kind of a thing that we don't talk about a ton on the show through a combination of inexperience and uh dislike i would say like or <laughs> it's not your favorite topic it's not that i dislike distribution it's that you think it's hella boring. So my thought exercise in when we talk about what we should talk about on the podcast is if I was a listener, if I was me listening to a podcast, would I be more interested in hearing about how to come up with cool shots or how to get an agent or how to get an, a performance out of someone or how to connect with people? 
or would I be more interested if like after I finished the movie and did all these things and it's done and there's no studio attached and I need to figure out how to distribute it, like what my strategy should be. It's like a super important thing, but I, I've gone through it, I guess, just once really. Yeah, I guess that's true. And the other time you made a feature, all of that stuff was taken care of effectively. Yeah. It wasn't and, your problem. It, you know, it's fun. The distribution part, the, there is something fun about it. When people are watching your movie and you're interacting with them, it's kind of amazing. You know, it's like going to festivals is fun, but it's just hard and it's grating. And it's like, you know, p- you hire people like Clay to help make it easy. And the details are really important. And it's very, 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 very easy to get screwed over as a filmmaker or not even to get screwed over, but to feel like you're getting screwed over. Right, which is a different thing. And, and a thing that we talk about a little bit with Clay, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, but I think once in a while it's it's good to hear. And so I think it's funny because you just finished a movie, so you're really on the like, now that I have a movie, like what's the best way to get it out there mode? And I'm a little bit more, uh, I think I ask him more a little bit about like, what kind of movies do you like to see get made? You know, what kind of movies are easy to sell? Like more that like step one thing of figuring out what I should make to get it sold. Yeah. If you're in the process of coming up with an idea or just deciding to put together an independent feature, what are the things that you're looking to make basically? Yeah. It's funny. I find like one of my podcast questions as an interviewer is tell us some like common mistakes or pitfalls or no one ever wants to answer that they always want to stay positive yeah but really what i'm trying to get them to say is like if you are making like an american drama that's about your family that has no unique point of view yeah don't and because you know we give a lot of feedback to a lot of people and like i don't like giving that type of feedback especially since i'm not really like an expert on what movies are selling or not and a lot of times like we'll hear feedback from these people that is totally different than what i think is even true you know as filmmakers we are in a bubble wherein we know and care about things that are slightly different than what mainstream people care about you know we're maybe paying closer attention to who makes a movie or what the most cutting edge style or content is or like we've seen more stories and so we're like more interested in something fresh and like you know sometimes the average viewer wants something that's more familiar than we have an appetite for you know right but even just you and me like you know to me if i made a movie and someone said it can be either on netflix or in 300 theaters and have a blu-ray release i'd probably choose netflix because i don't know anyone i haven't bought a blu-ray in a million years but then the other day i was talking to you and you literally bought a blu-ray while we were on the phone together (laughs) sure well and i've got a good friend at a studio in the marketing department and he always refers to me as the weirdo the guy that buys yeah he's like well and that's like the demographic that his job is now it's only weirdos who buy Blu-rays at this we point. We got seven people in uh, Los Angeles yeah. that buy Blu-rays. We got to find He them. knows all of them. But yeah, I think to your point, that I think that reinforces the point exactly, right? Like you're thinking like, oh, Netflix is about exposure versus money and all of that stuff. Clay is the type of person who's there to kind of really outline what our misconceptions are versus what he thinks is best for your film. And so... Even when you said like, oh, I'd rather go to Netflix straight away rather than having a theatrical run, he knows the calculus for how much more money you would make in your Netflix offer if you had a theatrical run. I know you actually know that, but the bottom line is that there's a ton of skills that it takes for both 
sales and distribution and for filmmaking. And not every single person out there is interested and passionate in both, which is kind of what it takes to be good at both of them. And so I think your attitude is like, I've done this enough times. I just want to focus on the super duper hard thing of making a good movie and then let it be someone else's problem how to do the media spend and ad buy and positioning to make it a success, right? Which I think most people, given the choice, would probably be okay with. And I guess there is a part of me, and I suspect maybe some of our listeners as well, who have that interest and curiosity and obsessiveness to make sure that their movie gets sold in the right way, right? Right. Well, I can tell you whenever we do touch on distribution, when we've talked about it to Liz Manichel or, you know, had previous interviews, we always get emails from listeners that they really enjoy that and they want to hear more about it. So I I do believe that it is something our listeners want to know about. And to me, it's not like I feel like I know it all and so I don't want to talk about it. It's like I've gone through it one time and it was very grueling. And so it's not exciting for me to talk about. And the other thing I guess I think about in distribution is it seems like it has changed so much in the last 10 years. The game changes really quickly. Yeah. That if I wrote a movie, I finished a feature script by the end of this year and I shot it next year and I finished post by the end of next year and it was going to be released in 2022, you know, distribution will probably be different than, than it is. I mean, especially as we speak, those models, which were already in the middle of being disrupted. Yeah, they're it, melting. Like, it's accelerated in a pretty insane way. But all that said, this is a really great mm-hmm. conversation. And I think that Clay is a realist, but also optimistic about the nature of independent film and what space there is for us and how to make money off of our films. Well, cool. So before we talk to Clay, though, we are going to chat with Jemai Youssef about what she's been up to for the last few months. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Welcome back. Hello. Nice to be back. Yeah. A- avid listeners will remember Jemai as a person that we've checked in with, you know, uh, a couple times a year, basically. What time is it? Is this three or four? I think we're on four. Okay. So, and you can remind us. Where are you? You're a grad student at USC. What year are you entering right now? So I'm entering my last year, which is year number three. Oh, then we are slacking. Apologies. <laughs> Wait, we're on year number three already? Yeah. Oh my I goodness. Can't even believe it. <laughs> yeah. Wait, we met you before you started, right? Yeah, I started listening to the podcast when I was back home in Massachusetts. And then when I came out here, I went to one of your events. 
I heard all the Harvard kids love listening to our podcast together. <laughs> and all those uh, smoking clubs or whatever they're called. <laughs> that was a... a, sure. a... <laughs> Oren, I think, has found a new sport in calling out Harvard kids, actually. Because, like, no one says it anymore, right? They, you know, back in Massachusetts, I was went to school, you know. <laughs> well, I always assume anyone that said they went to school in Boston went Boston, to Harvard yeah. Yeah. because, you know. Anyway, you're you're at an even better school, USC, in your third year. If anything can humble someone, it's going to USC. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> Unfortunately, only the opposite is true. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what your life is like right now. You know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Things are kind of locked down, but we're in this weird sort of like, are they going to start schools back up? Are people going to be going into classes in person? Is it remote learning, all this stuff? And obviously, film school is a very hands-on sort of situation. So tell us about uh, where you are in life and what's going on and your decision-making. So actually classes start next week because part of USC's plan is they changed up our course schedule. So classes start next week and then they're supposed to end around Thanksgiving. So already a lot of things are very different. Everything is remote, virtual, online learning, um, including- Wait, is next week early? Yes, next week is earlier than normal. So yeah, I think the only productions that are maybe potentially happening are maybe thesis or those like 546, 547 advanced projects. But for the most part, any production that happen that is happening is going to be like through Zoom. So like we have this infamous 508 class and I'm actually being a teaching assistant for that class this semester and everyone has to do production within their bubbles or within the actors bubbles and you know the actors will have to film themselves for example so it's a very very different process than what everyone is used to and there i mean it's been interesting in terms of decision making some people decided to take leaves of absences or maybe only do part-time semesters. So there's a lot of decisions to be made for sure about, you know, do you want to take production classes if it's not production the way that we're used to? Yeah. Are they discounting the tuition? No. Oh, wow. We don't have to pay lab fees for labs that we are not using. So that's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, you know, a mild discount, you know, it's still pretty heavy duty. So let me ask, are you, you're sticking it out? You're going to go to classes full, like a full schedule? Yeah. So I am taking a full schedule, but I'm only taking two production classes and only one of them is an actual like film production class. So I, like a lot of people, I've ventured into other departments. So I'm taking like a business of entertainment class and I'm taking an animation class as well. So the only production class I'm taking is music video, and I'm taking that because I hope to be able to make an animated music video. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I remember when I was a student, the people who took that music video class, they all walked away with like three cool videos. And it was like, oh, this is like the coolest class to take. Wait, <laughs> I, I, what, what do you learn in a music video class? The whole point of a music <laughs> video is to do something that like no one's done before. Well, I mean, you do get, you know, a production number and the resources to make a music video. So there's that. And I think you also make a commercial, too. So I actually don't really know a lot about this class. So I'm really excited to take it. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, let me ask, did you um, did you consider taking a leave of absence or anything? Or was it just that because you knew you weren't going to 
be in person much anyway like a lot of these classes your interests already kind of align with remote learning well yeah i did you know i probably changed my schedule like three or four times over the past few months and i am still taking classes that i had hoped to take at some point so it's just kind of rearranging things um, I didn't personally think of taking a leave of absence. It never really crossed my mind, but I can definitely see why some people would. And let me ask also, because correct me if I'm wrong, third year is when you start thinking about or maybe even actually shoot your thesis, right? Yeah. So I have a lot of friends who, you know, they were in thesis prep. They were supposed to shoot over the summer and that wasn't able to happen. So I think some people are trying to see if they can shoot during this fall or maybe it's just getting pushed further and further back. And even like the next round of people who would do thesis, I think that is also potentially getting pushed. So that, that there's a backlog of thesis right now. And that definitely sucks because like you said, we all hope to graduate with something that we can use as our calling card. But if there's no production, then what are we graduating with? Who knows? Right. So right. we'll see. Yeah. yeah, It's so ironic because I feel like all the grad students I knew would take like a fourth year or maybe even sometimes a fifth year because it's a way of like taking your time on your thesis and maybe you know not having to pay those loans back quite so early and all that stuff it's like a pretty common like loophole to just take an additional year and then you know if you're only taking your quote-unquote thesis class then it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg necessarily and now it feels like even the most motivated or or you know, uh, specifics, students who know exactly what they want to do and want to just kind of get out into the workforce maybe are forced into this, you know, other circumstance. Pretty wild. So what's your plan now? I mean, I guess I, I'm trying to <laughs> you figure can out. You ask us the same thing. Too, too. Yeah. <laughs> we're all, just to be clear, we're all in the same boat. You're just in college. No, <laughs> but. Talk to Orrin at least once a week. So. <laughs> no, but for real, like. I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are probably in a similar position to you that in that they are kind of at the beginning of their film career. They have studied or they've made shorts or they've they're transitioning into this as a new career or they've moved to L.A. in the last year or two, which, you know, we consider like brand new, brand new in L.A. And I guess I'm just curious what a person in that position like what your plan is. Like I know you've, so we were friends on Facebook and I've been seeing a lot of like awesome art that you're doing, like 3D character modeling, animation. Uh, I saw you were taking a VFX class. You just mentioned you're going to make an animated music video. Is that something that you're doing to like kind of tide yourself over? Or is that something that like, are you change, pivoting like directions a little bit so that you're ready to get a job when you finish this year of school? Well, I think definitely trying to get a job but I guess to step back I've always been interested in animation in the sense that I'm a huge anime and animation fan you know I've been going to anime Boston anime expo for the past like seven years in a row and actually before the pandemic started me and my producing partner and friend Alexa we decided to produce some animation thesis films from the USC animated department so we were doing that since like January 2020 and we were fully in that one was 3D one is 2D so we were learning a lot about the animation process um, and then it just so happened that a pandemic started and while I was um, back home for a little bit during that initial like heyday of quarantine I decided to try to teach myself a new skill because 
you know, a lot of times people say you should make a film over the summer. And I did that my first summer, but now it was like I couldn't make any productions. So me and Alexa, we decided to enter this 30 day challenge for making a real time animated short. So that's, you know, making animation with Unreal Engine with a video gaming engine. And so we started from zero and we taught ourselves from the ground up how to use Unreal Engine and how to make an animated film. And the challenge, they gave us some of the assets, like some of the characters and stuff. So we didn't have to learn that part from scratch. It was more about putting everything together and coming up with a story. And was this 30-day challenge just between you and Alexa? Or was it like kind of a broader program that Unreal was putting on? So it was actually sponsored by the studio called Mackinac Studio. And so they ran the challenge. But then Epic Games sponsored some prizes along with some other companies called Glassbox and Faceware. And I only found it, I just found this on Facebook. I was literally scrolling through social media as any millennial. And I started joining all of these Facebook groups about Unreal Engine and stuff like that. And so I happened to find it at the perfect time. So that was, but that was awesome. So that, with that, we learned how to use Unreal Engine. I also downloaded Maya and I and we started learning how to use Mixamo and all these other like 3D software out there, things that are free and stuff like that. So that was a huge learning curve for us. And now we're basically addicted. So that's what we've been doing a lot of recently. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing how easy it is to get addicted to like that tutorial stuff, which is to me, like I've, I've kind of been obsessed with things that are big time wasters. And now lately I've been obsessed with I've been kind of getting back into VFX. I was really into it many years ago. And I just think it's such a good way to waste time because then a project comes up and you're like, wait, we can actually do that. Like this explosion, I, I, I just practiced doing that or a character or a pandemic happens and you're like, let's just do it all in CG. You know, I, I don't know. I'm, it's just a very exciting time. Do you know much about Unreal Engine, Matt? Do you know about the, the new version that's coming out? I am vaguely aware of Unreal Engine from being a gamer, but like uh, certainly I know that also Unreal is kind of the real-time engine that they used on, say, The Mandalorian, and it's kind of like meant to be part of the, the whole um, revolution of like the new LED style of poor man's process basically so those sound stages that have the led screens unreal engine is kind of the brains behind being able to shoot in real time with a fully 3d environment yeah totally and the new one is extra fancy yeah it basically you're getting like photorealistic environments from out of the computer in real time like you can just walk around them and like out of playstation 5 or whatever the new yeah imagine just setting a scene in wherever you want, in a the you know a stadium, in Dagobah, in Tatooine, days. you name it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or just like a yeah. city street, you know, like you don't have to close down a street. You can just shoot your actors, you know, on green screen or in some contained way, and then you can put them wherever you want without permits. What excites me about that process the most, actually, is that they've done such a good job of creating the ergonomics of the tools that we're used to. Like you can literally walk around with a camera and point it at your actors and see those renderings in real time. And that's such a kind of like kludgy, clumsy way to make people who are used to doing it an old way do it a new way. Whereas like, I'm sure you two both are like, well, yeah, I could just move my mouse 
Like you don't, yeah. you don't need yeah. to build a shoulder rig <laughs> and track it in, in real time or whatever, you know? Yeah, exactly. But this is all really new. Like it's never been this accessible. I mean, Jemai just spent 30 days and you should check out her stuff. It like looks amazing. Like something you would see in a movie or in a video game or something. And now's the time to plug your Insta. <laughs> um, at I am Jemai, I-A-M-J-U-M-A-I-I. And like Oren said, I've been posting a lot of like, 3D character models that I've been playing around with on this free software called Daz. And like like you said, they're, they are definitely trying to make all of this accessible. I mean, there's a Daz to Unreal plugin that's about to be released that's going to be for free. And Kitbash, which is another piece of software where you, which can help you with like building environments. They just released Unreal and Unity like native files and they have some stuff out for free. So literally I spend my time kind of scoping the internet for everything that's free that I can like play around with because it definitely is cheaper than me, you know, owning a camera, for example. Like if I can make some really cool stuff without having to own equipment that kind of, you know, it's part of the reason why I go to film school anyway, to get access to that kind of those kind of resources. Yeah. And I think I, I'm sure I mentioned this before, but my last shoot, I did like all the storyboards in 3D and Blender. And then I, you know, you can put in the dimensions of the set and the dimensions of the furniture. And then I was on Zoom with my DP and we can like look around. We can choose different lenses and really plan out shots before we're on set. You put characters there and you can animate them or rig them so they're in any position you want. So I I encourage you if you're like, trying to get into film, you've been hit by this pandemic that stopped you from production, like check out these tools because you can really, even if you're still like, right, I mean, we all love being on set and working with actors and moving cameras and the production of it all is really, I think what most of us are attracted to, but this really lets you keep producing and learning and getting better at your craft without having to leave your house. I would also say that it's worthwhile to know those tools and to know that workflow, even if you don't have any intention of ever becoming a full-time modeler or rigger or animator, because when you ideally become a big-time fancy pants director, all of your previs, all of the those cool action set pieces and all of the the Marvel movie, you know, magic that happens that all ha- happens in a at least maybe not literally the same systems that you're learning but a, the but the same principles and skills will apply and like when you become a, a big big director half of the job is that previous work you know like when we talk to brad payton when he's doing rampage all that stuff most of his work most of that post time is just in reviewing vfx shots so the more savvy and more capable you are of communicating with your team uh the better your movie's gonna be i wanted to say so Oren actually did inspire me to go down this path because i remember early on in the pandemic he was like oh i'm like doing some vfx work now and i was like wow wouldn't it be so much cooler to be able to do vfx as your side job as opposed to like being an assistant yeah <laughs> Yes. I just thought, that's so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So well, thank you, Oren. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You, you know, I've been trying to get my wife to do VFX for like so many years. I'm like, Carrie, I'll just teach you how to clean skin because this is what they do on like 80% of TV shows, you know, in After Effects, just like s- remove wrinkles, remove like smoker's lines, fix wigs, things that are like literally you could teach someone how to do it in a week and then they could just do it and just um, make money. She, she's like, I literally... 
have if when you learn how to be a Pilates instructor, I will teach you. <laughs> I will learn how to do this. Like I have zero interest. Um, but I'm glad you're the first person that I think did have interest well, in, in something thank, I do. Thanks for telling him this on the show, Jemai, because that means that uh, I guess I have to listen to his PC talk that much more. Yeah. That <laughs> yes, was justified. I support it. Well, speaking of PC talk, um, so there's been, last time we talked to you was a long time ago. And I think since then, there's been like a lot of activism you know, um, a lot of a big push for diversity in Hollywood and stuff. And we've talked to so many filmmakers that kind of at every level and even like um, some people working in the commercial world, noticing that they're asked for more diverse filmmakers and not just it's not just like because it's appropriate for a specific job, but just like in general, kind of trying to diversify things. I'm curious from the film school point of view, what you think about everything that's going on and like how you think it, it's kind of like as it pertains to your career and film, do you have you noticed any change? Um, I know in film school, it's you're learning more than getting hired. So I don't know if it would be as evident there. Yeah, I mean, I will say in terms of like networking and trying to, you know, have one on ones with people, I think partially because we're all at home and also partially because of this, like, you know, increased activism, like you mentioned, I think people are really open to just talking. So I was able to have a couple of like one-on-one Zooms with, you know, women who are development executives um, over a quarantine. And that has actually been really helpful. Um, And I mean, yeah, I feel like as a film school student, you are a little bit insulated from all of that stuff. And then again, I mean, all of... This, these discussions, I remember hearing back in like 2016, like when I was graduating from undergrad. So I don't know. I hope this is something that will last. And I mean, if it helps us or people like me, I think that's definitely for the better. But I guess it, there's always this fear that like, oh, maybe people are only talking about it for a few months. And then by the time I graduate, they've already forgotten about all of that. So we'll just see if it lasts. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder, obviously, ideally it will last and things are changing. But I do wonder if like part of not taking a year off from school and finishing now is could kind of help put you in the right place at the right time. I mean, in the same way that like I'm really putting a lot of eggs in the VFX basket because it seems like right now, post-production, you know, I'm talking to people about jobs that are like 50% CG and that skill set is helping me, you know, get jobs like, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like there's so many like amazing diversity programs now, like directing programs and they've, they've always been existed, but they've been just kind of like a little hard to reach. Lackluster or maybe just like, I feel like you might have your point before of like oh yeah like we've seen sort of this mentality shift before and maybe it just it just doesn't last like you you'll see like oh they have a few success stories that they point at all the time and it's like well you guys have been doing this for 10 years now there's more than three people who came out of this program what's the deal you know but yeah i i don't know i i think i'm optimistic i think that hopefully we see more habits changing and forming you know like, uh, I guess there's some unlearning to be done. Yeah, those diversity programs, too, I think are even more important now, because I think one thing that's one lasting effect from this pandemic is that it's going to be harder to shadow directors on set. 
And I've even, I've, I asked everyone I can about like, oh, like, what do you think about that? Is that still going to be possible? And people, you know, keep telling me, oh, you should probably do one of those programs because that's probably going to be, you know, one of the few ways to actually get on set now. So, so we'll see how that goes as well. Yeah. You bring up an interesting point though, because I think that, you know, all of my friends who are working on big shows, it's like everyone's talking about how you're scaling down where you used to have 12 directors who would do, you know, 22 episodes between all of them. You're looking at three, you know? And so no matter who you are, like the only the most experienced people are booking those jobs. If it's like three, you know, three directors for an entire season of network television, that's, that's not many jobs for the rest of us. A story on the other end of the spectrum is a good friend of mine. Who's been a director. She's directed music videos and shorts and commercials forever. But she's never done TV and she's never done a feature, but she just got, she's in this program called Female Forward and she just got an episode of an NBC show through that program. So I don't know. We'll see. It's like, there's like 8,000 question marks in the world right now, but I think it's an exciting time to like keep your eyes open and, you know, kind of find all these new things. Like I know a lot of times we talk about focus and just like sit and work on your screenplay or whatever, but it seems like this is a time in the world to like find all the opportunities because they might they might come at a left field. Okay, well, anything you want to leave us with, Jemai? Any um, tips you've learned? Any new things you're thinking about? Is film school still worth it? I mean, yes, because of the people. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the reason to go to film school in the first yeah. place. So, um, Also, just download Unreal. It's free, so there's nothing stopping you. Oh, yeah, uh, except for a hard drive space, which is a problem I oh, ran into. Yeah. It works on Macs as well. You don't have to have a PC, but having a PC would be nice. Yeah. Have you decided when you're going to make your thesis? That's the that's the, the question of the year, right? So I'm not doing a thesis. I never was planning on oh, doing a thesis smart. because Save your money. I don't really have money like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was definitely trying to, you know, maybe make a short film through some other classes, but now there's no production. So who knows? But I mean, I just wrote a feature film. That was crazy. <laughs> yeah. So can you still get a degree if you don't do a thesis? Is the thesis yeah, not because... related to that? I didn't go to grad school. <laughs> you just have to work on an advanced project. And I've already done that. I did production design, like Matt did. Oh, okay. It's kind of the best like student film role, right? Wait, so why would you make a thesis? Exactly. Well, <laughs> that, that's the first question. The second question is, wait, how much did you spend on your thesis? Right. Is it easier yeah. to raise money for a thesis? Is that yeah, why people do it? Yeah, if you just ask your rich ass parents. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, Sorry. Sorry. But people take out additional loans. People take out loans. Yeah, yeah. people take out loans. Yeah. Which is very sad. I, I can't. I already have so much debt. I just. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, one of my first jobs in LA as a Dolly group was on a $100,000 USC thesis film in 2005, which in 2020 money is probably like a $120,000 <laughs> thesis film. Yeah. Well, I hope um, it was good and I hope that they're employed. Me too. Because, me too. Yeah. The DP, the DP went on to get a lot of amazing work. I think the director is, uh, you know, now designing handbags or something unrelated to film. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, but, uh, Jemai, keep okay. us in the loop. Let us know what happens. Stay safe. And uh, may your render times be short and crash free. Thank you. That, thank you. <laughs> Error free. Error free, I guess, is maybe. <laughs> crash free for sure, too. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you. And I'm so glad that I got to catch up with you guys. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, us too. That was great. Thanks so much, Jemai. Now let's hop in with Clay Epstein from Film Mode. We wanted to kind of sit down and talk with you mostly because our old friend and uh, common guest, Roxy Shea, was like, Clay's the best person in the world. I trust him with my life and all of my movies. If you want to talk to somebody about distribution, Clay's your guy. I did not pay her to say that. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't. She's uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's got too rich. Integrity. Her she's bank too, was like right, too much uh, pride. We can't put more money in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Roxy's the best. I I told you uh, earlier when we met, she was producing, and I'm so proud that she's jumped into directing and such a talented person. So very happy for her. Stealing the the floor at our live shows left and right, making fans. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> For sure. So, For Clay, sure. can you give us a quick, just like a one or two sentence summary of what film mode does? I'm a salesperson, so one or two quick pitches are very difficult. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, film mode is, in essence, a worldwide sales agent, which means we represent distribution rights for independent films, working for producers. And we see ourselves, uh, we see our job as getting films to an audience. And can you tell us... What the difference is between a sales agent and a distributor? They used to be much more clearly defined. And as the business has evolved and consolidated, some sales agents are distributors and some distributors have gone into sales. But a sales agent, kind of like a real estate agent, doesn't own the house, but is working on behalf of the owner to get it to someone who's going to buy it or license it or acquire it. And in our world, we license films to a distributor and the distributor will ultimately get the film to an audience rather that's theatrically after the pandemic's over um digitally vod and itunes on google play we call that transactional vod i don't get in i don't need to get in all the nitty-gritty of the jargon unless you want but we don't mind we all know what itunes is that's you know digital distribution uh, there's still some DVD out there for some films, so DVD is included in that distribution. You're looking at the guy there who still go. buys DVDs. There you well, go. Yeah. You're Blu-rays, the one. Blu-rays. You're the one. There's Blu-rays. one. There, no, there's one <laughs> blockbuster left apparently, and you sure. can in, Airbnb, in Bend, Oregon. You can Airbnb yeah. and stay in it overnight. But I saw. <laughs> I, I saw I, the ad. Business is no that joke. Slow. <laughs> uh, we have good friends in Bend, and I've been like seriously thinking. Well, about that's what's kind of sad is that I'd probably do it if I was there. <laughs> So. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Also, Bend is like a really beautiful, like rural area. It's like outside Portland. So like if you're into like whitewater rafting or like mountain biking or anything and movies, but I miss and craft beer. I miss the, the smell of microwave popcorn. Oh, man. And yeah. uh, and the blue walls. You know, that was my job after high school. So that's I worked at a Hollywood video. There you so go. I, I the competitor. You're you. the competitor. Yeah, right. And I was uh, pirating movies then. There time. you go. <laughs> <Across you. laughs> so, uh, yeah, but getting back to, to us. Uh, and distributors then work with retailers slash platforms. Wait, so is Amazon Prime a distributor or a platform? Oh, or you, both? You, had, you had to go to there. Uh, all of the above, depending on the film. Because Amazon can acquire a movie from a producer. They can acquire a film from a sales agent. They can commission a film to be produced and actually be involved in the production. Wait, so if I made a feature, an indie feature film, low budget, like a hundred thousand dollar movie, could I contact Amazon directly? And what is their email address? And so, even to make it even more murky, and in some ways exciting, because there's been a change in the environment because of the technology. 
that there's in many ways more control with the producer to self-distribute or retain the rights and destiny of their own film. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be successful or that you'll make a lot of money doing it, but it means you have the capability of doing it, which that did not exist a few years ago. There were gatekeepers, and if you did not get your film licensed to a professional distributor, there was no way to get it to Blockbuster's wall of new releases, as an example. But Amazon's a great example of of explaining a self-distribution model. And so Amazon actually has, and I'm not a paid uh, endorser of Amazon, but Amazon actually has the capability that anyone with the feature film can self-distribute it on Amazon digitally. It's, I believe, called Amazon Direct. And what you would do is you go online, there's a form, you fill it out, you have to have certain materials for your film, certain files and metadata and all that stuff that you would need. And you upload the file to Amazon. And what happens is when you upload it, it goes into the Amazon Prime branding, right? And we all know the Amazon Prime branding is similar to Netflix. It's the SVOD, the subscription VOD model where someone, I call it the all-you-can-eat buffet, right? In the Vegas, you pay 25 bucks or 30 bucks and you can eat as much as you want, right? Wait, are you now, serious? Not now. Well, I don't know if it's still twenty five <laughs> bucks. Now, not all the, the not all the shrimp might be top top rate. <laughs> sure. You know, the champagne not be may not be the the best, but there is all you could eat shrimp. You know, right. so now the way the filmmaker is then compensated is and I, and I don't know the actual uh, formula, but there is a formula based, I believe, on minutes streamed by a consumer, but it's a very low amount of money yeah. you know pennies that you'd have to I think to... listeners at home are going to be like oh I would rather work with clay than upload directly Well to and I would direct. say <laughs> that's a very smart thing to think <laughs> uh, Well no so... but but bef- but is there any place other than Amazon Prime or Amazon that gives gives you that platform like you can't go to Netflix or Hulu or Well see Netflix HBO is Max. no Netflix is S right Netflix does not have that model um, but there are transactional platforms that you can get to through aggregators. So you can get to iTunes uh, using an aggregator. So there's some up, there's some additional costs to get to iTunes because iTunes will only deal with specific labs slash aggregators to, to take delivery of a film. But I guess circling it back to the difference of a distributor and a sales agent, uh, a distributor is the company or the entity that is releasing the film to the consumer, right? And that that business model is spending money to acquire rights to a film, and it's spending money to market it and to promote it. The poster, a trailer, advertisements possibly, the cost to create the appropriate files that iTunes needs, and that file is different than what Amazon needs, which is different than what Google needs, which is different than authoring a DVD and having the DVD sleeve created, Facebook ads, that type of thing. You're actually releasing the film. You're hiring a publicist. You're getting it reviewed, right? You're getting some promotion going on, and you're putting the film out there and making it available for a consumer. And we do. We've done both, right? Our core business is the worldwide sales, meaning we usually will sell the rights of a film to a distributor on behalf of the producer. Domestic and international? 
That's correct. We specialize in the world. We're very, very strong domestically and internationally. That you know, we've been. That's our core. You know, this is that's the business we're in. We have close relationships before and after the pandemic's over. We travel the world to trade shows and festivals and film markets, and, and it's our job to stay very current of what's going on in all the countries in terms of economy, uh, trends, viewing trends, technology platforms. And so that, yes, that's our core business. But with that, and as things have consolidated, and as the selectiveness of distributors has shrunk, well, they are more selective. So what they take is is shrunk. Mm-hmm. Maybe their deals have shrunk. <laughs> deals in many ways have shrunk as well. You need to have the capability of a B plan, a C plan. And I tell producers that when we when we represent their films or discussing plans and strategies. Is that A plan is you sell it to the highest bidder. And the reason that those big, huge deals that happen out of Sundance and Toronto make the front page and are all over the trades is because they don't happen very often. They are certainly, that's a minority of what happens. You know, it's, it's a rarity. Even at a Sundance, right? Like there's a couple hundred films at Sundance? Right? I more, you know, more. And yeah. the amount of thousands, what, 15, 20,000 are submitted. And then a sure. very, you know, what, a couple hundred get accepted. And then out of that couple hundred, maybe one or two get a big deal. Get a big you know? But isn't so it very true small. to yeah. Clay that sometimes those deals have even been decided before Sundance and are Absolutely. announced at Sundance? Yes, it's great to say we were up all night and we did it over a napkin. On a napkin. <laughs> right. I mean, everyone loves that. Yeah, it's a very oh, yeah. cool story. I love I that. I, that. Yeah. yeah. Now, the um, napkin looked like a computer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. Well, the I napkin wanted, was in CAA. Right. The na- uh, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to dig in on this Amazon thing for a second, just because we, so we get a lot of people emailing us that they want to come on the podcast and talk about their film. And their film is on Amazon. And, you know, that's kind of like one of their big selling points. And the reason I was asking about Amazon is because it seems like anyone can put their movie on Amazon, right? And then at that point, say that their film is on Amazon. Is uh, that you, that's a correct statement. I'll be happy to elaborate on my, my own experience and certainly belief that having a sales agent and a distributor on your side, if you're able to do that, is, is so helpful and, and crucial, you know. Because of self-distribution being a possibility today, a filmmaker who may not have been through the process before might say, what does a distributor do if I can get my own film on Amazon? If I can get my own film on Amazon and on YouTube and have advertisements played in front of it, I can keep the rights and keep all the money. And I've heard the story many times where I posted the trailer and it has 300,000 hits on YouTube. And even if one or 2% of those buy the movie, I'm going to make more money. And the truth is, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. It just does not happen. And the reason is, go and open up Amazon or iTunes or any platform on your phone or your computer or your iPad or TV. How big is that front that front store? Yeah, how, how many posters are you looking at? Right. right. Even if you like scroll through, if you're browsing, how it's many movies very are you really small, scanning? It's a very yeah. small, finite storefront. You know, when you when Blockbuster existed, when we're going back to Blockbuster for a moment, because I love talking about Blockbuster, bring make makes me feel young again. You would walk that new release wall, right? That was like something to do. That was half the evening. But it was a lot of physical real estate. 
and the space of your phone platform, however you're watching uh, your your movies, computer, phone, iPad, or television, it's a very finite storefront. Now, the back of the store is infinite. So the storeroom is infinitely large, but no one will be able to find anything back there if you're not pushing it in the storefront. And the storefront is in a way curated and it's curated in such a way that it's very difficult to predict even very established distributors cannot dictate how a digital storefront is curated and it's different with every platform some are curated through algorithms some are curated through a conversation a relationship an amount of Promotion, not maybe directly with the platform, but elsewhere, meaning the film was released theatrically on 3,000 screens, the platform is going to be more interested in promoting it on their storefront. And the platform wants to get, they're incentivized to get a lot of views. So they, if there's a new Charlize Theron movie where she's an action star, they want to put that front and center as opposed to an indie film that no one's heard of with a cast no one recognizes that has a weird poster. It depends if it's a transactional scenario or a all-you-can-eat subscription scenario also, right? Because the subscription-based platforms are thinking more programming, almost like a TV network was. You know, how are we programming? And those storefronts commonly shift by algorithm of the consumer's interests, right? So my Netflix storefront might look different than my mother's, right? Because... That algorithm has learned my interests and viewing habits. Yeah. I remember Netflix used to say, we recommend hyperviolent movies from the 70s to me all the time. And I was like, well, yeah, they all right. have their I own. Don't know. They all have their own interesting algorithm. On that how was when Matt was using his mother's password. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Amazon. So going back to the to this using a filmmaker as an example that may have come on the show and said, you know, I want to promote and plug my film that's on Amazon. I want everyone to go see it. Is the consumer able to find it, locate it? For first of all, Amazon, the, their financial model is as long as people are viewing and subscribing, their model's working. So they want to make sure that they are providing their their client, their customer base with options and with good entertainment. But this filmmaker having their film on Amazon doesn't mean there's an audience for it or that there should be an audience for it. And I think it's a very or sobering... Or that anyone is vouching for it, right? Which is kind of the other thing that's the value add that you have. You're a person who knows the players, right? And you're saying, hey, I think this movie is going to make us all money, right? For, for whatever reason. That's why you would take on a film in the first place. I think the most sobering, honest statement to say for filmmakers to really question themselves on why how and what, you know, in terms of material, is if you build it, doesn't mean they're going to come. And if you build it, doesn't mean anyone gives a shit. That's the honest truth. And that is something unique to our industry. That's not every industry. Uh, It's something that's connected to any industry that balances art and commerce. Just because something's interesting to you doesn't mean it's interesting to someone else. And I think a very difficult reality to accept because by and large, independent filmmakers that are not commissioned to make material or have not established a commercial career are driven by their own 
emotional, artistic motivation and endeavors to go spend that time to write a script. And then if they are lucky and ambitious enough to raise the money and then go make the film, actually make a movie. It's an enormous effort, enormous amount of money and time. Are you saying my passion project about a young white male from Sacramento who goes to film school and then moves to Hollywood that maybe isn't necessarily a guaranteed hit? Well, what I would I would never I say hit. to I mean, don't forget this is entertainment. So I would sure, never yeah. say to you, no. Right, right. I would say that sounds really interesting. Keep me posted on that. Who's in it? <laughs> Who's the in conflict? it? <laughs> Keep me updated on that. Yeah, yeah. I think the listeners at home are going to want to know, okay, they 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 hear that, right? They hear you everyone has to be smart, you have to be strategic, right? We are balancing art and commerce, like you said. What are the things that you have seen filmmakers do right that make you want to work with them? Are you talking about people with a finished movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like finished what, like movie or, or finished movie. maybe just in in yeah maybe just in general yeah like they you know you meet someone at a trade show or a festival or something sure. like that they hand, what do you want to see when they hand you that screener or or you know follow up with a link later on down the line professionalism the willingness to be collaborative right and 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 one example might be uh, here's my film and it's you know it, the title is you know thirteen words long that no one can pronounce right. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Right. Well, you can never use a studio or cast-driven film as an example. Comp. <laughs> Ooh, this is that's a nugget though. That's really good. To that's contradict really good. my point. <laughs> mm-hmm. And why? Why is it? Why can't you use a studio comp? Because studios can spend their way into success. Right. They control distribution. They have TV output deals. They're controlling the promotion and marketing. So. Much, so just because a movie starring Jim Carrey, even though it's that is pretty artsy, the height, the height of his fame. Sure, you're right, right. But that's an easy mistake to make, right? If you're like, well, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, that's a hell of a long title, Clay. Right. Help it's me only out seven here. words, by the way. Clay right. was saying thirteen is the is a problem. Where sure, the problem sure, start. <laughs> you can you can spend your way into advertising. Right. It's to, apples and oranges to educate yeah. the consumer. You can uh, control the theatrical release, the taps and the TV output deals that have value associated with them that help dictate the, the formula that studios have, how wide to release versus what the TV is worth and the other ancillary markets. Uh, we don't, independent work in a completely different space. You know, we, we make something and hope and dream that people will embrace it because we're not controlling the distribution and marketing of it because we don't have the money to do so. It's a much different model and formula. On a more shallow level, do you think a shorter title is an easier sell? Absolutely, yes. Like one so, word even, is better than five words? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's all pragmatic reasons. I mean, it's, we're in a digital world, right? So here's, here's a couple of pragmatic uh, reasons, right? iTunes and the other digital platforms have a maximum amount of characters that you can type in the metadata fields when you post a film on their platform. So if your title's too long, it might even get cut off. That's one reason. Second reason, when consumers are watching and looking for something to watch in a transactional setting, meaning we're going to rent something on iTunes or, or cable TV on, it's usually, yes, it's a proactive uh, viewing effort from a consumer as opposed to watching TV and having something pushed to them. They do have to go through and, and with the remote control or filter or swipe and look. Um, and long titles don't always 
attract or catch a consumer when they're in a very crowded space, when they're looking at things on a digital screen and looking at a lot of different bits of content thrown at them, right? So that's another practical reason. Um, there are other marketing reasons. It's very hard to do posters and trailers for long titles, right? So a lot of titles lend themselves really well to artwork, right? And good artwork and a good trailer is key to success in the digital distribution space. It's very important, especially when you don't have all this money to educate a consumer about a film. If you have a lot of money, your film could be as long as you want it. If you had a $100 million marketing spend and you're going to put up the billboards and the TV commercials, et cetera, film could be as long as you want it to be, the title. So Matt, has any of what Clay just said affected the thoughts on your movie that you just finished? Well, uh, we've had a long conversation, many conversations. Clay, I think you recall, our film is called uh, What Are You Doing New Year's? So that is six, six words. words right there. It's a thing to think about for sure. And alphabetically, it may be not <laughs> as interesting, but... Sure. As I was I asking, when are you doing New Year's? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, think some, I think a lot of platforms are still alpha stacking, which means the A's are on top and the Z's are on the bottom, you know. So you don't want your film all the way at the bottom. Yeah. Andrew, yeah. comma, yeah. what yeah. are you doing? That's what Clay, Clay's like, I don't know, we got too many, we already got two W films, you know. We're looking for something. <laughs> That's it. We need, we, need, sure. we need a B. But, <laughs> yeah. but also... Just think about not to put your film no, sure, as, a, as a, we call it a litmus sure. test. No, case study. That's the correct mm -hmm, yeah. term, right? A yes, case, let's yes, use it correct. as a case study, if you don't mind. What are you doing New Year's? Now, if you asked a designer, make me a poster. What's the title? What are you doing New Year's? I think it's a romantic comedy or a romance mm -hmm. drama. I think. Yep. How do you create the perfect poster for what are you doing New Year's? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I don't think it's the, it's not the worst title. It is an, a classic song and is a, the question, thematically, I think it's interesting. What's tricky about it, and this is, I guess, you know, if we're making it a case study, the conversation about, it's a holiday film, right? It's about like a Christmas party, right? And so there is the question of, does it need to explicitly say, Christmas, if yes. that's the thing that you're selling. Now, right? you just told me the best title for that film. Oh, what is the best? I can't wait to hear it. Christmas Party. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and yeah. that is I mean, the Office best. Party was a pretty, pretty yeah, cool Christmas and, party. And, yeah. and try and prove me wrong. I mean, you know what the poster is going to be. You now have a Christmas branded film. You know exactly what that trailer is going to be like. And when you have that title listed in a digital space and people are flipping through it and they see Christmas party, they're like, oh, mm -hmm. they're like, oh I get it. Yeah. They can I, they can associate something with that title. And I, I like to put it in the perspective is the title is one of the most important and least expensive marketing tools. It costs you nothing. I have to do a title clearance, you know, to, to make sure you're not, you know, you, you know, for instance, you can't title your, your sci-fi film Star Wars but if it's two movie stars who are at war, you could call it Star Wars. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hold on. Let me write right. something down. Yeah. Write that oh, down. Star, yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. Well, and I think that what you're getting at, though, even broadening it out to someone maybe who doesn't have a movie about Christmas parties, if it's a slasher movie, you know, whatever genre elements that you can lean into, maybe there's something worth talking about there because the way that we thought about our film 
knowing that we weren't going to necessarily have huge names in it, right? Emma Stone isn't in our movie, right? What are the other elements that are familiar, right? Clay, you talk a lot about educating a, a, a viewer, right? What are the shortcuts that you can implement to like make someone immediately familiar, right? And so a title, I think, is one of those things. I think that, you know, I think we could talk about the other elements that maybe you think of outside of perhaps star power that appeal to you as a as a marketer. Yeah, I mean, t- title is important. Uh, now, a lot of, you know, we, we make sales agents and distributors make artwork and trailers. So certainly one of the things that's not uncommon that that sales agents do is to is collaborate with the filmmaker to change or, re, or revise a title so that it is more marketable and maybe revise or create artwork in the trailer is there any and this is probably such the answer 100 percent is it depends but are there any guidelines for good artwork for or things to avoid what should a poster do to a viewers it should like position the film for exactly what it is especially in our independent space with the you know consumers looking looking at uh, films on the digital space right because the artwork's the first thing they see does having a face make a difference like is it akin at all to like youtube thumbnails if you have a famous face famous person in the film that's you want to use that face and if the you know, a famous celebrity is in your film for 10 minutes only, you still want to have that face as big as you can on that poster. And it's a very common... That's good. I got a few for 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's a very common <laughs> negotiated point with distributors. Sure, if, you have yeah. a, if you have a celebrity, a famous actor in your film and it's only 10 minutes, they may say to you, I'm only going to buy this film if I can use their face on the poster. Yeah. And I, I worked on a movie with Jesse Eisenberg and he was by far the biggest guy in yeah. the film person in the film and he's in the movie for about 10 minutes and one of one of his deal points you wouldn't know it from the trailer well one of his deal points <laughs> was you cannot use my face on the poster right and then uh, not him so you the, know his people he was very right nice. but the value of that film is reduced when you take it to market because of it it was called the social network or something like that <laughs> so that's one of the and the other these you know a couple other ideas you'll see that images are not too overly crowded you don't want images too overly crowded and it's not uncommon that a theatrical artwork is different than the home ant or transactional VOD artwork. And theatrical artwork could have, can be a bit more bigger in scope, maybe. And when you get to transactional artwork for the home space, you want it to be much more specific, much more simplified, have usually one larger image in the center so it's very easily identifiable. Same with color. Like, I mean, kind of color. All sure. Rules. You don't want black and white. You don't want to drawn, you know, and you want to embrace what the film is. You know, you want to position the film as what it is. So if it's a horror film, don't make it look like anything other than a horror film. Uh, if it's a comedy, don't make it look like a drama, make it look like a comedy. So you really need to embrace what the what the essence of the genre is, the most purest commercial essence of the film. Cool. And so I think this next question and is probably also not an easy answer, but my guess is we have a lot of listeners. They they made the hundred thousand dollar film, and they want to figure out is that a big enough film to get a sales agent to get a distributor on, and like how if you do, how much does it cost? How do they just pay you some like monthly fee, a flat rate, a commission? How does money? How does the business work for it? Yeah. The standard model, and you're welcome to pay us up front if you want, 
The standard model for a sales agent is usually marketing costs, you know, the ability to, to go to, to film festivals and film markets, and then commission on sales. And part of marketing costs is making the trailer and making the poster. There's sales marketing costs, that's, that's poster and, and trailer and, you know, advertisements in the trades and a publicist. And then there are film market costs, going to Cannes, going to Toronto, going to uh, Berlin, for instance. Are those upfront costs, though, or are those... Those are generally recouped from incoming money, so, they're re- so the sales agent advances them and then recoups them from sales, and then they get a commission for their sales, a, commission, a negotiated commission. One of the statements that always bothered me from, from, again, filmmakers or producers that have not been in the business for very long or it's their first time, they'll say, well, you didn't finance the film. I want you to have skin in the game. Um, and I want you to give me money or I want you, I don't want you to take as much recoupment on the cost. And when you have to think of it, sales agents work on consignment. Everything's deferred. So we're, we're out spending money for your efforts you're taking and a believing, risk. We're taking a risk on, on, and believing in your vision. You're and going your to effort, can whether our movie sells can. or not. Yeah. I'm going, I have to sip rose on the, on the beach because I believe <laughs> yeah, in your Rosea. vision. Sorry, Claire. In your vision. <laughs> yeah. I have to get the least expensive bottle of wine, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. But seriously, we are spending monies because we believe that your film does have value. And we're going to start going about, and we're doing all this work before we make a penny. And most most times we don't make a penny for six months because from the time of acquisition, if the film's completed even, from the time of acquisition and acquiring it and the legal work and promotion and the materials and bringing it to market, selling it and collecting a deposit, it's at least six months. And we've done a lot of work up until that point. Can I ask you just specifics? Because, you know, we've Matt and I have, made stuff and been have a lot of friends that have made things and have had really good distribution experiences and really bad ones. So I'm just curious about like the specifics because, you know, I've made a movie and it got distributed and I, I think it, I, we really enjoyed our distributors and everything went well, but sometimes actually we did, hated our domestic distributor and loved our international distributor to be totally honest. But um, a lot of times we were looking at the numbers and we just were so confused as to how they even add up. So let's say, for instance, you're going to Cannes and you're going to AFM and one other market, Berlin. And let's say each one of those trips costs you, you're sending a couple people and hotels and planes, like $15,000, let's say. Um, and you go you go to those three places, so $45,000, and you bring with you 15 movies to each of the, one of those places. Do you recoup around $3,000 per movie? Or like, is the movie that makes, you know, is bringing in $150,000 covering the one movie One bottle that's of rosé is on one movie and one <laughs> bottle of rosé is on another movie, right? It depends on the film. It depends on the status of the film, you know, and it's not, we're not just selling a film at one can or one Berlin, you know. It usually has one or two cycles of film markets and then in available territories, three years later, we're still presenting it to potential buyers as a as a library or catalog title. Right. And you're kind of like a regular agent, right? Where you have kind of your big films, your middle films, and you're kind of Yes. You know, and films that are in pre-production, production, post, and completed, right? And so you, you have films in different stages. Some sales agents have a much higher budget at markets than others. Some are in a lobby taking meetings at a hotel, and some have a huge booth. 
at the the palais and they bring out three or four people and they entertain the clients like you should. And of course, their costs to go to a market are much greater. But you want to make sure that your sales agent's doing their job. You don't want them wasting money, but you want to make sure they're doing their job and promoting your film in the best possible way. And you want to be at a company that presents well and is professional and has good exposure at the events because sales agents have reputations and, and brands of sorts as well. In, in yeah, the and relationships. In the, and relationships, absolutely. Um, and so I think there may have been a time, you know, even before me, that that's where producers felt they were being um, taken advantage of or difficult to audit or keep track of. You want to make sure your sales agent's doing the work. One one way to maybe an analogy, uh, I don't know, maybe a poor analogy, but I can't think of a better. If you have a better analogy, let me know. Um, but anyone can, uh, at least in the in America, anyone can defend themselves if they have to go to court, right? You don't have to get a lawyer, right? You can go to court and present to the jury and defend yourself. And some people are brilliant at that, and some people are not. Ninety nine point nine 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 nine. Right. And I don't know. It's maybe 100 percent. I don't know anyone that should do that. I can tell you I've done quite well myself in traffic court. <laughs> you should you should probably hire an attorney. Right. Right. Because that's what they do day in and day out. And they probably know the judge and they know the court system and they know everyone and they you know everyone connected with it and they know the strategy um, and you should probably have someone professionally representing you. And similar in the independent film space, you can try and sell your film yourself. But should you? Is that really the best thing to do if you don't have to? And not every film is going to get a sales agent. You know, th there are that $100,000 indie film may not be a film that sales agents feel uh, is is warranting of a sales agent. Right, because I, I think that was a perfect segue to ask, what does get you excited about a movie? We're looking for films, and I think all sales agents, at least in the States, uh, because we're not a, it's, it's not a subsidized system here, with the commercial center. And that commercial, that commercial center can be comedy, romance, horror, thriller, but it has to have a commercial center, which means there needs to be an audience. And sales agents evaluate films using a, a benchmark. It's not usually a formula. There's no rocket science to it. It's experience and just kind of knowing the marketplace. A benchmark of how many territories around the world is this going to sell to? How far can this travel? And if we review a film and we say, and we think, you know what, this is just too insular or it's too American or it's too... This is only going to appeal to, to a, a very, very small Sacramento. demographic. Then it might just not be worth taking on, right? And so that's a very long answer to, to, a, to a short question. I think summing it up, it's, you know, how commercial is a film? When I say commercial, how wide of an audience is there? How many people is it going to speak to? Yeah, and we've actually, I think, talked to one other distributor on the podcast, and it was a couple years ago, and his big note to filmmakers was, try to figure out who your audience is before Who's you make want the to watch it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Definitely. There are some very funny first-time mistakes that seem to be consistent oh. uh, among a lot of uh, first-time filmmakers. Please, yeah. Uh, by default, 
It's not not everyone, but but certainly I've seen it many times throughout my career. I think one of the biggest issues that I would advise to stay away from is mixed genre. It is really difficult to successfully make a movie that has mixed genres. And most of the time, the filmmaker will refer to a famous director that has successfully done it. Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, (laughs) You know, Tarantino, Baz Luhrmann, Rodriguez, Alexander Payne, Wes Anderson. We're talking about filmmakers that are taught in film school. You know, Woody Allen. But I would probably advise against it until you've established yourself and proven that you can do it because it's very difficult to get a mixed genre film into distribution. And I'll, I'll explain to you why by asking you. If it's a horror comedy, where does it go when you look at iTunes for a genre? Where, mm-hmm. do, where do you put it? Both. Right. But what if someone's <laughs> looking for comedy to like truly sure. laugh? Are they looking for a horror right. film? Um, yeah. You right? just released two versions of the movie. This one's like a little and if you, This one's a little scary. And if it's a comedy, but... 50% of it's drama, but there's some comedy, Does that, that goes into drama, but the sales agent will want to sell it as a comedy. So the marketplace will have wanted it to be a comedy. So the filmmaker should have just made it a comedy with some dramatic moments sprinkled in. Right, do you think, right. on that note, just to dig in specifically, do you think comedies are an easier sell than dramas internationally? They're both difficult. Comedy's easier. But the comedy has to be broad because humor is culturally specific. So the only humor that's not culturally specific is usually physical or steeped in uh, in experiences that transcend cultural boundaries. Right. Right. So every culture has weddings with family coming to them. They all have different customs, but everyone could probably relate to a wedding gone bad. Right. (laughs) Even if it's, you know not exactly the same culture religion that you are you can everyone can associate or at least imagine what what a wedding would look like if it goes bad but if you start getting into humor that is about locally specific uh, language or local celebrities or something that's very specific to the country or area of a country that's not going to travel a thing that i want to kind of backpedal on and ask a little bit more about we were talking a lot about like film markets and like you know the expenses involved with that in the era of covid right where you're not going to your afms and your berlins and your cans right how has the business changed for you what are you doing now are expenses just lower and you're just emailing people or how does that work because i think that a lot of our filmmakers who are like stuck with a movie right now who are like oh boy we just changed our plans because of covid we're going you know, direct to DVD or, you know, like self-releasing or whatever. How has it changed for you? Tell us more about that. We're, we're still sorting it out, working twice as hard to find ways to engage with the buyers. That drinking alone, the rosé right, alone. Drinking alone, <laughs> drinking yeah. the rosé alone. Both Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's been there's been platforms that are popping up uh, to, you know, that, that have the technical ability to have a, a virtual meeting and be able to show trailers and assets during the video chat. Um, we'll see because things are changing a lot month to month uh, as as countries shift in and out of of uh, COVID hotspots and and consumers uh, the you know consumers being affected by the economy up and down. Uh, some countries may have TV networks that are not acquiring because the ad- advertising's down. I think in general. At least here and the UK, 
I don't not exactly sure about France right now, but in in the certainly in some of the Western territories, the physical and home end market has seemed to be quite robust while everyone's home. So DVDs pick back up a little bit, transactionals pick back up, uh, but for the right film. The other reason why it's uh, the independent films have managed to compete a bit is because there's no studio films competing against them. So that's iTunes storefront again. If there's no new studio film taking up the, the, the number one spot on the storefront, it's probably a great independent film that has cast to at least support the placement. We keep talking about it because we're, we're pals with these guys, but we know the wretched uh, filmmakers who had the number one movie in America thanks to drive-ins. Yeah, know? the drive-ins, yeah. That certainly changed things a bit as well, right? Yeah, it's exciting. Like, like any other industry, I suppose, during the pandemic, some industries and some people have found success or opportunity and others have lost success and opportunity. And I don't think we are immune to it in our industry either. If you had a theatrical film that was going to go to theaters and had to be pulled and all the marketing had been spent, that's that's a problem and, 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 and a really unfortunate one. Alternatively, if you had a film that never would have been to the theater but now found success in the drive-ins, that's a wonderful success story. I'm on your website right now and I'm seeing, you know, you have some movies with some really great cast, you know, uh, Sienna Miller, Bruce Willis, uh, Jackie Weaver, Lucy Liu. And you have kind of these horror films with maybe less recognizable casts, Jonathan Lipnicki, uh, Robert Taylor. There's kind of this, I don't, I don't know, from my point of view, and I'm sure a lot of people's point of view is like, the harder you're leaning into the genre, the less cast dependent you are. So that's why these kind of horror films seem to maybe be picked up by distributors and sales agents without huge cast, but like comedies and action films and dramas seem to kind of need cast. Is that if I'm a new filmmaker, I'm trying to get my comedy made, should I wait to get cast, the recognizable cast, or should I just make my movie? You are correct in saying that as you move further away from genre like that, your cast is even more and more crucial. So romantic comedies, comedies, drama, you have to have big cast or else you're, you're nowhere. You can't get, you just can't get it out to an audience. Horror has shifted. You know, there was a time for, for a while that there was a market for horror without any cast. If the horror was good and it satisfied a particular niche of horror fans, there was a marketplace. That has now gotten more difficult. Horror has gotten more difficult to sell. Um, it has to be really unique and really well done and have a new voice and a new uh, angle or a hook um, and ideally be branded in some way, rather a remake or a reimagining or, you know, we had we were selling Rabid for a while. It was a reimagining of David Cronenberg's film, Rabid. So having a remake or a reimagining or a reboot, you have some IP to fall back on in lieu of cast. Right. Because I think of movies like, um, and I know these are studio films probably, so they're probably not fair comparisons, but like The Babadook or Midsommar that have cast that, you know, most people probably don't know by name, um, but then they just do incredibly well internationally. Is that, it's an execution? Yeah, Babadook was execution dependent. Uh, 100%. Okay. And Midsommar, I was going to ask you this because I've just, it 
applying to some of the, my own projects. I'm working on a kind of a relationship hor- uh, thriller. And I was thinking of Midsommar. Have you seen that movie? No, uh, I have not. No, oh. No. oh, it's good. It's you really it it's so good. Amazon Prime, man. <laughs> but it's um it's very specific. It's like this they about these this group of PhD students that go to study this Scandinavian culture that does all sorts of insane things that get quite scary and psychologically tormenting. And it turns out the director Ari Aster, who wrote it, also like in, invented the Scandinavian folklore. Or, but it's it's borrowed from real things. But he kind of made his own version of it. But based on your the thing you said earlier which is like having the more specific the harder a movie is to sell i've been kind of struggling because especially in like 2021 it seems like at least what we're hearing here in like kind of our progressive liberal los angeles hollywood of it all is new voices that we haven't heard before like characters we haven't seen before like cultures that we haven't been exposed to before are what is getting people excited but is that only if you're working on a $50 $50 million studio film or is there some application of that same like exploration of new things that we've never seen before in the indie space and how does that work with the poster the Christmas movie like all the like recognizable right. archetypes how do you balance originality which is going to get you buzz maybe and the salesmanship of something familiar right yeah I guess that's the million dollar question and we're still finding that out to be honest I mean, I'm happy to contradict myself any day <laughs> to, to my advantage, um, but um, I think we're still finding that out, and I think it might be project-specific. Let's go back to the romantic comedy again, right? Uh, what a perfect genre to introduce diversity into. That genre is just tailor-made to embrace diversity, right? Because it will only add to the enjoyment, the entertainment factor, the new voice. It's a way, it's a way to put a new spin on a very age-old genre, the romantic, the rom-com. So that's a great genre. And if I was presented a rom-com or ones we're looking at, and they said, we want a diverse cast and we want to put a new spin on this, we would say, great, that makes sense. That makes sense. And it will bring a new and fresh element to it. If it's an action film, a commercial action film, which is a very, uh, you know, built up formulaically to work everywhere in the world. Does that genre benefit as much? I don't know is the honest truth. I don't know. And I'm not going to pretend to say one way or another because I honestly don't know. Right. We see a lot of people putting like kind of famous Chinese actors in action films to try to um, have an appeal there. Is that like something that I mean, I guess that's probably... Well, I, it's, it's, a, it's certainly, we all know it's a sensitive topic. Um, and I think if you ask 10 people, you'd get 10 different opinions, depending on how politically correct they are. But it, it, but it is venturing into unknown space. And my take on it is we have to make a decision on how we want to embrace new voices and acceptance with filmmakers and cast and talent, et cetera. Certainly the independent space probably has the most uh, leniency or freedom to do it on some material and less freedom to do on other material. And the studio will find more freedom to do it on some material versus other. The studios also, I think there's also this sense of responsibility, right? Because if a studio, and I'm not putting that opinion that I think a studio should or should not, but I'm imagining if they have the financial means 
to have a, you know, let's say a Marvel movie type of budget that they know they can control wide distribution of, then that seems like a perfect opportunity to diverse the cast because they're, they're taking their responsibility and they're doing it in a project that they know they can have that freedom with, right? Because that film's going to be successful regardless. Right. So Their question is how successful? Right, but they know it's going to be successful, right? I don't just mean in terms of diversity, in terms of like, you know, as independent filmmakers, we're taught if you want to stick out to get into Sundance, to be a viral hit, to be the paranormal activity or the Blair Witch Project or the Napoleon Dynamite or whatever, you know, these lore, these stories of lore you've heard of. Sure. You have to do yeah. something that no one's ever done before. But then from a sales point of view, you're told, like, tell us exactly what this movie is like so that people will, will want to buy it. I would counter, actually, having learned from Clay, you just named three very clear genre movies. That's a straight comedy, Napoleon Dynamite, 100% comedy, Blair Witch Project, 100% horror, Paranormal Activity. It's like totally straight up. You know exactly what part of the video store those are in. There's no... And very, very well executed, right? So execution has an enormous amount to do with the success and the breakout successes of certain films, right? Timing, luck, and execution. Right. And I'm also naming movies that are like 20 years old. So it's, sure. like, <laughs> and, it's a little and unfair. A, and know? a completely different marketplace. Palm yes. Springs even is a good example. Like, yes, that's got movie stars and all of that in it. But like... That, yes, technically it's a sci-fi comedy. And but it's that's a, a genre. It's a genre. Film, it's a comedy, right? straight up. It's a comedy. No it's, it's a comedy with romance. Comedy with romance, and you have you have cast. People go into it thinking it's a comedy, and then they are pleasantly surprised by the sci-fi of it all, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. It, it's but it's soft sci-fi. it's certainly not a sci-fi. Yeah. It's high, I would call that a high-concept comedy. Yeah. It's also yeah. a perfect streaming movie, like on VOD, yes. because there's zero money you have to invest in order to take the leap into it. And once you're yeah. in, and it's fun. Much sold. It's, yeah. it's a fun film. Awesome. Well, Clay, we could talk to you for hours and hours more, but we know you were a busy man. Do you have a few minutes to hop into unpaid endorsements with us? Ooh, unpaid endorsements. I love talking about things that are interesting to me. Unpaid endorsements. I'm going to triple down on just um, Blender if you want to get into <laughs> 3D graphics. You got to check out Blender. It's just like blowing my mind every single day. I, I've talked about it on every single episode. Just check it out. Check out the tutorials. You're going to be a, a different person. But and what what is it? It's software? Yeah. Like, it's like, like um, software? yeah. So it's, you know, Maya is like kind of the famous 3D software that every studio uses to make 3D stuff for movies. Well, Blender is the free version of Maya. It's open source, so anyone can have it. And it just has this giant community. And people are, our friend Lawson, who has been on the podcast before, used, his company uses it, used it on Man in the High Castle to, you know, add airplanes and blowing ships and Statues of Liberty falling down. And I mean, they, they use a lot of pieces of software, but it's just, um, it's, it's awesome. Um, but um, more specific, and unfortunately, this is like very specific to where I live, which is Silver Lake, California. But there's this place, Maury's Bagels. Um, they do like a COVID pickup thing. And, you know, they're overpriced, like all of these kind of cool hip bagel places. But um, what's cool about Maury's, which I just discovered this past weekend, well, Maury's has this uh, brunch thing that you can order and it's like really cheap and you get 
like 10 bagels and the cream cheese and the lux and the onions and the capers and the cucumbers and you can add an egg salad you're and, so excited well because i love it's the buffet you know you mentioned the las vegas sounds buffets. fantastic yeah how nice is it to get a little bit of everything instead of having to order like a tub of i cream love cheese. it so i'm in maury's bagels m-a-u-r-y-s bagels they do the an heirloom tomato rather than a, a beefsteak tomato if you get a tomato on your bagel which is a, oh, really? but i'm gonna try and i love bagels a significant so i'm gonna try yeah. and uh, yeah and the bagels are they're really good surface just announced this fold out phone slash tablet oh microsoft surface yes and i have not been this excited about a new piece of tech uh like since my Motorola flip phone, <laughs> flip phone, StarTac. I mean, I don't think it's out yet. You can pre-order it, but I watched the video mm-hmm. and it's everything you'd want. I mean, it it unfolds with a beautiful hinge. It folds over. It's double screens inside. It's a phone. It's basically everything you'd ever want. Now, it might be like holding, be big, holding a notebook up to your, like this, right? But uh, it looked looked awesome, like a really nice bit of tech uh, to compete with the, I guess the Samsung Fold, I think is probably what the... And you're not an iPhone guy, huh? I am an iPhone guy, but I'm also the best tech guy. So I am willing to go outside. I have a Surface computer, but use an iPhone. I got rid of the MacBook a long time ago. Well, what a better segue than for me to talk about my new PC that I switched to. <laughs> See, the, no. the Surface are both. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. And the other, I have two more. Yeah. The other, uh, another bit of tech, and I can't remember the name of it, so it's hard to endorse it, but they were they were a Kickstarter. They were a Kickstarter campaign, and it's a computer monitor that attaches to the back of your laptop with magnets, and you pull it out of the slide, and you have dual monitors with your laptop, and it's completely portable. Mm. Oh, wow. And you, ha- you and got it? I got it, and it's awesome. Are you using it right now? And you have it already? Uh, not at the moment. I don't have it at the moment. I have it at the ho- at home, but it is fantastic. Oh, uh, yeah. that's a relief because I was worried that you would kickstarted it, and then they were never going to actually be able to follow. No, no, it. no. I got it. I, I I paid for it. They had already had the first shipment oh, out, and then I was on the second awesome. one. And it works. It connects to USB on your laptop, and you know you could take it on the plane wherever, and it just kind of. Comes out and it also goes landscape and horizontal. That's cool. I mean, it's a really nice. And the last is uh, not so unique, I guess, for a white male living in Westwood. But I got into vinyl during the pandemic. <laughs> uh oh, you're not the only one. And, on this uh, you're not the only and one. And obsessed, yeah. obsessed. You know, I, I, uh, I probably went through four turntables on Amazon until I settled on the Fluence. Um, so I did settle on the Fluence. And now I'm obsessed with buying vinyl on eBay and tracking the orders as they're oh, delayed man. constantly. Are you a Discogs guy? You mean that's like the, what, like the place where I'm buying Yeah, them? Discogs is like, uh, not unlike eBay, except for it's specific to music what? only. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Are, do you not know about it? Oh, it's best. No, oh, I've, been, I've been using eBay. Waste I've been your using time, eBay. man. Oh, oh dude. and the prices are as good as eBay? As good. Like, I've been getting some pretty good finds. Basically, the difference between Discogs and ebay or amazon or the any of those others is you're basically dealing with people who tend to have their own stores right so these are like old oh, old timers yeah. who are like yeah, yeah. i just got all like that we had to shut the shop down i've got my entire inventory up you can haggle with them you can and it's discogs discogs d-i-s-c-o-g-s the only well, downside I know what i'm doing after this podcast. it's so fun and also like you know you're gonna find anything rare that you're looking for you're going to find a couple different copies of they have a great rating system in terms of like quality and condition 
but the only downside is that there's a lot of international sellers and so you have to mm. be careful in terms of sorting because you don't want to get stuck with a ton of shipping right well i've been having a ton of fun buying records listening to records again like my kids now know what a turntable is and a record is there's like there's a there's a strange satisfaction in that sure. yeah um so then the other obsession is then speakers, right? So then I'm going through self-powered speakers. I'm on my fourth set I've been returning, and I finally bought a receiver. Like I finally said, okay, this, the powered speakers are just not going to satisfy my my itch. And so I got the an Emotiva receiver uh, with speakers have yet to arrive, but the reviews and the videos all say it's affordable audiophile gear so i'll let you know on the next episode if you ever have me back and um you know it's been enjoyable never been home this much right yeah and there's such comfort in being like oh like what records should we put on you yeah know? like there's a little yeah, bit more nice. of a decision you kind of get to know the music a little bit better it's pretty fun well i'll i'll close it out with a, a nice straightforward one um the imagineering documentary on uh or series rather i should say on disney plus i haven't really used oh. disney plus at all i would watch uh, that it's great they go through the entire history basically like park by park they really dig in on you know the process of like both their successes and their failures you know there's a lot of stuff that like wasn't really great out out of the gate you know california adventure being a, a good example um but they talk about the international parks and just the creative process in general um, the only thing I will warn you is if you are a person who relishes in collaborating with teams the way filmmakers tend to, it makes you pretty like lonesome for set. Like it makes me miss work in a really intense way. Um, but, you know, it's international. There's all sorts of fun. There's tons of inspiration to pull from the all of the brilliant people who've worked there. Uh, and it's really great. Well, Clay, this has been awesome. Yeah, um, if people want so much fun. If people want to send you their movie, what's the what do they do? <laughs> or just learn Ten, more about you, <laughs> or learn pre, more pre, about you. Prepaid, prepaid, uh, self-stamp. Look, we have a website, filmmodeentertainment.com, and more importantly, I would appreciate liking the Facebook page. Even though I guess Facebook's a bit old school, but that is a good way for us to get information out and stay connected with our buyers and our colleagues and clients. So. It's film and film mode entertainment, film mode entertainment, F I L M M O D E entertainment on Facebook. Uh, that's a great way to stay in touch and see what we're up to. That's where you can get, you and I, receive I can, fan I, mail. can I do one real, can I do one plug? Yeah, yeah. So we have, we have stage mother coming out the 21st, which is this week. What's today's the 18th. So it comes out, I guess, Friday, right? Is that Friday? I like that Friday. title length. I know. I, stage mother, <laughs> August film, right? 21st in theaters and on demand. Oh, nice. Jackie Weaver, Lucy Liu, Adrian Grenier, Jackie Beat, who's a famous drag queen, who's awesome and hilarious in the movie. And this is a fun, sweet, warm, musically filled film. And uh, hope everyone gets a chance to see it. Stage Mother. Awesome. Awesome. We'll have the links to all the things that we talked about on uh, our website, justshootapod.com, in case you're curious. Um, you can follow us across all social media. We'll even share the Stage Mom uh, trailer on social at just shoot a pod across across everything. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. I'm at O Kaplan on Instagram and at Smitey Pileg on Twitter. 
Though it's been kind of a couple quiet weeks for me because I've been uh, been getting into too many online arguments with people. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, send us an email and leave us a voicemail one two six two shoot one. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, thanks for listening. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams, and our social media producer is Derek Ayello. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.